We appreciate you, Noel. You the man. Thanks, Wes. I love you, man. This is such a such a wonderful honor and privilege. I'm so man, you guys came out at nine o'clock on Sunday morning. Y'all don't usually meet at nine o'clock here, right? I was I was thinking you remember Mark Shiver, he went, he and Tammy were here yesterday. Friday night he spoke at a tent revival in Wilson. And because of the hurricane, the radio station couldn't, um, uh, by the way, my wife's not with me, so I, I, I probably look like a mess here. Is, is there anything too bad? Is there anything too, am I, okay. I, I, uh, thank you. So, somewhere like a week or two ago, I can't remember, I think it was a, a seminar, because I don't really preach that much, but um, I do seminars for attorneys, and and um, I looked in the mirror after I did my presentation, and my hair was sticking out over here. I was like, oh, my God. They didn't say anything. I'm about to take my wife with me to those little seminars. just to. But anyway, I was um, so, so happy that you guys, when I saw anybody here, more than two people there this morning. It's like, this is awesome. <laughs> and, um, but Mark, uh, he, he spoke at a tent revival in Wilson, and they hadn't had a chance to uh, advertise on radio because the station went down because of the hurricane. And so Friday night, it's like his family and the host family and two people in the audience. He, but Mark said, I preach like I've never preached before because he knows, you know, he knows the message. I know he's been here before. He knows the truth. It was so awesome. And, and um, he said, I believe that uh, in heaven one day somebody would come up and say, you know, I was there that night, and that changed my life and, and, and uh, turned my life around, and this happened, that happened. We don't know. We don't know. So many times in the natural, things look um, limited and small, and yet God loves those settings because that's where he can show himself strong. And that's where, uh, see, God grows things from the seed from the inside to the outside, like James was talking yesterday, talking about the concentric circles. That's how life um, grows. And so God shows himself strong in situations like that. But um, uh, I, I carry this little picture of my dad in, this, in my little Bible here. And uh, I want to tell you one little story about my dad, like four days before he passed, uh, it's almost ten years ago now, uh, we were in the hospital in Raleigh, and um, I had, several years ago, I had sent him tapes of James, and my dad, uh, those of you, many of you know him, or some of you know him, he preached here many times, and, um, um, but he's a, a Assembly of God, Pentecostal preacher from the old days, uh, he was born in 1927, he was, as a kid, he was a member of the only Pentecostal church in Washington, D.C. It wasn't really popular to be Pentecostal or charismaniac back in the 1920s or 30s or whatever. So he kind of grew up in a totally different world than what most of us see today. And, um, and so I was really concerned, you know, does, uh, does he believe this finished work? Never been a man of greater grace, in my opinion. The, the grace of the Lord was there. And I never heard him preach legalism and law. As a matter of fact, his whole attitude was was not legalistic. He was very forgiving, and and um, and he had to. He he was in a role where he had to discipline. It's called discipline ministers. If you got out of line, he he was his role was to discipline. So you know he had to you know play by the rules and but he was very loving. So anyway, I, I was very anxious about what does dad think. <clears throat> and so I sent him tapes of James. And many months later, um, I said, Dad, what do you think? He says, I've never heard James say anything that's unscriptural. And for Dad, you know, those old guys, they didn't just throw around recommendations. You didn't find them like, oh, here's the next great man of God. They just didn't do that. They didn't say that. They believed a man's ministry would make a way for him. And he needed to have faith, and God would pave the way and, and 
produce fruit in his ministry. So for dad to say, I've never heard James say anything unscriptural. That was like a ringing endorsement. So four days, about four days before he passed, um, my brother, God bless him, I love him. I have two brothers. I'm the oldest, and, and Wes, he, he lives in Fayetteville, North Carolina. He, he owns some gospel stations, and, and we had Bibles in the room, and like several times a day, Wes would say, Wait, let's read Scripture. You know, you read the Word, and I believe in that. I mean, I believe there's power in the read or spoken Word of God if, it's, if, if the Spirit, you know, is enlightening that to people's minds and, and thoughts. But Wes would grab Psalm 23 every time. It's like there's no other chapter in the Bible. We, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We, he would read that. And Wes would say, here, you read it. And so, like for days, Dad was in the hospital 75 days um, before he passed, between his surgery and when he, when he departed. And, um, and so it's always Psalm 23. And Dad and I had, had several script, uh, had uh, some scriptural talks and uh, many, many times. And what he knew what my favorite scripture is Psalm, not Psalm, Second um, Corinthians 5.19, kind of the essence of the gospel, that God was in Christ, talking about when Jesus was going to the cross, God was in him, reconciling the world to himself, no longer accounting, ledgering men's sins against them. And, of course, uh, that, that was one of the, the liberating moments in my life when I, it hit me. God's not counting my sins against me. That's a very liberating, it may have been your turning point, too. And Dad knew this, and we talked about Paul's writing so much. And I'll never forget, it's one of the greatest moments of my life. Uh, my brother grabbed the Bible and said, let's read from the Bible again. And Dad knew what was coming, Psalm 23. <laughs> and Dad didn't even raise his head. He says, let the reader read Paul. <laughs> that was code for I want to hear the gospel. I want to hear the good news. I want to... I want to hear the new man in Christ. I want to hear our sins are not counted against us. I want to hear union with Christ. Psalm 23 is wonderful. But the reality of this, the great imagery in Psalm 23 is found in Christ. The, 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 the things in the Old Covenant, and, and I'm, I'm not nearly there yet, but here's where I want to be. <clears throat> Remember Philip in um, in the book of Acts. He's he's uh, traveling about and he finds himself in the desert. And this Ethiopian treasurer, this high official, is riding along and he's reading from the scriptures. And Philip um, essentially looks at him and says, "Do you want me to explain to you what you're reading?" Before he knew exactly where he was reading. He may have known he was reading Isaiah, I can't remember exactly, but he didn't know exactly what, what the Ethiopian was reading. But he knew he was reading the scriptures, and, and Philip says, do you want me to explain to you, or do you understand what you're reading? Would you, it was rhetorical, do you want me to explain to you what you're reading? Wouldn't it be so cool? Remember how David described the Old Testament, he said, it's like a pop, or the whole Bible, but especially the Old Testament, is a pop-up book. You see Christ on every page. You, if you see the revelation of who Jesus is, it just pops up. Wouldn't it be so cool if you could walk through Starbucks and you see somebody reading the Bible? I'm from Dallas. People do that out there. It's the buckle of the Bible belt. And, um, or see somebody studying out. Really, I mean, you could do this with anything. Um, but especially the scriptures, and you just say, "Not you don't even know what they're reading," and you say, "Would you like me to explain to you what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? Here, let's look at it." And you know, because on virtually every page, you see Christ. You could see Him in the law. You could see the foretelling and the shadow and the substance of what was to come. And of course, you're able to tell them that. This, this covenant you're dead to, let me show you the new covenant, rightly divide that so that um, we, we know that Christ is the reality or the substance, or another way of putting it is he is the perfect representation of, the, of God. 
He's the face of God. When you see, do you want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. So to be able to say that with confidence, and I think, I think we can. I think you, you might be surprised if you think you can't do that. Uh, you might be surprised when you start reading the old scriptures, the old covenant, that you say, wow, I never saw that before. Like James and I were talking about Psalm 1. Were you going to use that this morning? Okay. Well, Psalm 102. <laughs> Psalm 102, 18, it says, um, This shall be written for the generation to come, that a people yet to be created shall praise the Lord. And preachers have said, well, when you praise the Lord, you're praising Him for your grandchildren. You're praising Him for your great-grandchildren because there are people yet to be created. That's not what it says. Your grandchildren are a generation. When when people are born, Adam was created, Eve was formed, everybody else has been generated. That's why they call us a generation. We're not formed, we're not uh, made so much in the image of God as we are in the image of Adam and our natural man. So, so our generation was generated by by the implanting of seed in a woman and babies were born. That's how a generation comes to be. But that's not what the writer says. He says, for a people yet to be generated. No, for a people yet to be created. David, or the, the writer of Psalms here, was seeing, in part, the new creation. It was yet to be created. It was going to be created. It wasn't a generation. It wasn't a species that had ever existed before. And I looked up the word briefly yesterday, and it's the same word that is used when God created the heavens and the earth. Something that had never existed before, God created, and that's who we are. That's who, I'm not going to step on what you're going to do, because I think you're doing the new creation, the circumcision, the new creation here in the service. So, no, what I, what I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to encourage you with uh, a few thoughts this morning, um, I don't think he would mind me saying his name, but um, uh, a guy named Russ Taff. Anybody ever heard Russ Taff? You remember, if you do contemporary Christian music, followed it through the years. He was won many Grammys and Dove Awards, and he was called the most electrifying voice in Christian music. Um, he's only a few years younger than me now, but he's still singing an incredible voice. It still just screams, man. It's incredible. And so, last weekend, um, we were, um, he was with us in Dallas, and um, uh, we took him out to eat, and some friends, and we just were able to quiz him about all, all his ups and downs. If you know anything about his history, he's had some ups and downs. I mean, he, he was on the mountaintop, and then he, there was this very difficult times, and he's pretty open about that, but I... I said, look, Russ, I've kind of followed you through the years and and noticed certain, you know, your attitude and and uh, your ministry. I said, I've noticed something. You've, you've never developed a rebellious attitude because I know a lot of rebellious people, me being one of them. But a lot of uh, a lot of people that just got very bitter at God and bitter at the church and bitter at, you know, people. So I noticed you've never done that. You've always, you just kept going on. After you had a difficulty, you just, you just picked up and you kept going. You didn't quit. And um, I don't want to go into it, but briefly, I, uh, he was telling me about his, uh, his siblings. They were all quitters. He said, we were all quitters. And he, there's a neat, neat story about how somebody at a young age approached him and you know, basically cured him of his quitting. But he said, we were just quitters. If things got too hard, we would just quit. God helped him with that, but he never he never quit after that. I said, what was the secret? What was the one thing that kept you going? He's 62, three years old now. So what kept you going? Um, he said, well, you know, my dad was a Pentecostal preacher. He was an alcoholic. And we had a lot of difficulties that surrounded that. He said, but we lived about two blocks from our little Pentecostal church. And he said, in the evenings... I would get out of the house because it was not a pleasant environment most of the time. I would get out of the house and I would go down and I would just sit there 
for hours and hours, night after night after night, and I would talk to Jesus. And I got to know Jesus. And Jesus was so real to me. And so through, and I'm talking to these 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old. And night after night, I talked to Jesus. Folks, he really is the way, the truth, the life. It's him. I tell a story, one of my favorites happened here in North Carolina. I may have mentioned it here before. And it's the story that gave birth to the song by Tony Orlando back in the 70s, Tie a Yellow Ribbon Around the Old Oak Tree. It's a true story about a man who had disgraced his family, gotten into a life of crime in a small town in North Carolina, and had spent many years in prison and was finally being released. And this is back before email and easy phone calls. And so he had written his parents, and he said, I don't know if you'll own up to me. I don't know if you'll allow me back home. I don't know if you'll still claim me. But if you will, I'm being released from prison, and I'm taking the train. And the train went by the old farm uh, before it got to the depot in the small town where they were from. And he said, if you will take me back home, would you just tie a little yellow ribbon on a branch of the old oak tree in the backyard where the train goes by? And if I see that yellow ribbon, I'll know that it's okay to come home. So when he begins to get close to the hometown, and he's about to round the curve so he can catch a glimpse of the old oak tree in the backyard of the, of the homestead, he's sitting at the window and he's looking, he's trying to f- see, he's almost afraid to look. What will I see? Will that yellow ribbon be there? And as he rounded the curve and he caught a glimpse of the old place and the old oak tree, he saw a yellow ribbon, not around one little branch, but on every branch of that tree. Mom and Dad had tied a yellow ribbon. On every little limb, every branch, and then a big yellow ribbon around the trunk of that tree. Not only was every branch filled with a yellow ribbon, but Mom and Dad were standing underneath the old oak tree, a yellow bandana in each hand, just waving with all the strength that they had. It's okay. You can come home. That's a very touching and moving story to me because, first of all, it's true. Second of all, it, it touches something in all of us where we want to be loved unconditionally, that no matter what we've done, we always have a place to go home. But it hit me last night or early this morning, that is not only a picture of God and his love and the prodigal son's father who ran after him. The, the effect of the story is this. The gospel is those yellow ribbons. That's the signal. That's the message. But the yellow ribbons pointed to mom and dad standing underneath the tree. That's where he was going. The message is wonderful. The the message of the gospel is the power of God to salvation. The message points us to the man, Jesus. It's all about returning us to God himself in Christ. So as much as we like to see the yellow ribbons, remember this. It's all about him. And whatever, whatever your situation is, you're on a mountaintop, you're in a valley, talking to Jesus really does make it all right. That old gospel quartet song, just let us have a little talk with Jesus. Tell him all about your troubles. Well, you can tell him anything. He's there. Folks, it's about, he's real. If he's not real, this is totally in vain. If he didn't rise from the dead, Paul said, you're wasting your time. Let's turn this into a VFW hall. Because, but here's the thing. If he's real, then this changes everything. So, um, if, if I can encourage you this morning, I want to talk about this in Galatians chapter 4. 
you, most of you probably have done studies on Galatians, and you know what is at stake in Galatians. Paul is struggling with believers that he had, on some occasion, we're not sure exactly what was going on, but he, he was sick, we think. Uh, there was some infirmity, and, and it landed him at these churches in Galatia, and, and uh, what would that be, Turkey now? But, um, and because of that, he was able to minister the gospel to these wonderful people, and they believed and they received him as if he were an angel of God. And, and Paul says, you actually received me as if I was Jesus himself. I mean, it was probably the shining star in his ministry of these awesome people who had believed on Christ because uh, he, he got stuck there because he was sick and obviously, you know, got better and, and moved on at some point. But such tremendous faithful people. And the Judaizers had gone to them, had begun to bring them back under the law. And this was very disturbing to Paul. He was very disturbed about this. I think we know why. Because the law is the law of sin and death. And the law of liberty under which we are is the law of life. The law of liberty. It's, it's the law that gives us freedom. Not the old law, but the, the new law, for lack of a better term, it, it gives us life and freedom. And so this was, this was um, life and death. This was big deal. This was light and darkness. And here these people were coming back under the influence. And, folks, can I just say this? We, we Christians sometimes are the most gullible people. We... Uh, Religious people are sometimes the most gullible. They will take to themselves and they will follow after some of the most horrific teaching because the preacher sounds good. Because the, it's, because the preacher um, is attractive in some way to them. Paul talked about it with enticing words of man's wisdom. Entice means you're drawing something if you're enticing, you're, you're taking people and you're bringing them somewhere. You're bringing them to yourself. He said, we've got to be careful about that. Paul noted, and I see this all the time. Used to see it all the time. Um, a lot of times, religious people will just love it when somebody beats up on them. I, I used to really preach against sin. And, buddy, I would just... I mean, I got more amens and people clapping their hands and, and afterwards they, Pastor Noel, boy, you really laid it down today. Boy, you really offended a lot of people. You stepped on my toes. Ouch, man, my toes are hurting you. You stepped all over my toes. That was awesome. I'm beat up. You slapped me around. Paul used that image. He said, you take these people and they slap you and you write them a big check. You, you just, you, you, you go out of your way to follow people who abuse you. That doesn't work so good when you understand the kindness and the grace and the love of Christ. Because, you say, wait a minute, the kindness of God leads to repentance. And, and so it doesn't work for people who see the truth and see the message. But this, this goes on all the time. And so Paul with the Galatians is laboring with them because they have allowed themselves to be carried away by these, uh, these attractive teachers for whatever reason they were attracted to them because they were bringing them back under the law. And he says this little phrase, um, must I, in verse 19 he says, must I labor again and in the and in the context and in the word meaning, he's talking about labor like a, a woman, a mother goes through when she gives birth to a child. It says, must I labor again among you that Christ may be formed again in you? Now, that's a phraseology that we don't use today in our world. Um, I think I mentioned yesterday how 
I've written volumes of discipleship manuals and training manuals. And we, we think in terms of um, when we say formation in the natural, we're thinking of learning, uh, of, of line by line, you know, seven points to this, three points to this, and here's the steps and here's the levels. And we're going to we're going to do formation by leading you through an educational process. And that's not what Paul is saying here. So this is not phraseology that we use generally, that Christ may be formed in you. How does we're talking about a person? Christ is formed in you. So that caught me. And I realized, you know, this is the essential work of an apostle. We need apostles. We need those that do the, do the labor of an apostle. Why? Because without that labor, there's no formation of Christ. You can have a church building. You can have an organization. You can call it what you want. But if Christ is not formed, you have nothing. You don't have a church. The essence of the church is Christ himself. And that's why Paul says, I labor until Christ is formed in you. Paul left churches and didn't even have elders. See, in, in our, I've heard teaching in the last few decades that apostles are known by their great organizational ability, by their great leadership. And uh, if you if you have a, a large church and you have other churches that are under you and that that come to you for leadership and you build a network, there there are men with incredible leadership skills that have networks of churches of thousands and thousands of people and leaders, and that has been that has come to be known as what an apostle is. That has nothing to do with apostolic ministry. That has nothing to do with that foundational ministry. Paul said it's, the, it's how you start laying the foundation on the apostles. Why? Because the essence of the apostolic ministry is that when the apostle leaves, Christ has been formed in you. He didn't even have organization to speak of. He wrote back to Timothy, appoint elders. Oh, and... It might not be quite as absent-minded as I'm making it sound, but it's like, oh, we need to appoint elders. Uh, Timothy, here's how you do it. Here's the qualifications. And deacons. Make sure you appoint deacons and, and, and take care of this business, you know. And, and it's almost like he could have done it while he was there, but that was not the essence of what he was called there to do. The essence of what he was called to do was to make sure that Christ was formed. And I like the, the, the phrasing of this because notice, notice carefully, Paul did not say, I'm laboring to form Christ in you. My ministry is to form Christ in you. This is what we love to do in, uh, as ministers is to take the job onto ourselves. This is what I do. I will teach. I will train. I will work and I will labor and I will form Christ in you. That's a pretty good job outline, I would say. I mean, the end result being Christ. But that's not how it happens. It doesn't happen because I put my hands upon you and I mold you. Like James was talking about yesterday, the, the, the outward pressure of the clay to mold you. That's not how Christ is formed in you. He does say, I labor until Christ is formed in you. See, you see the difference? He's not saying, I labored and formed Christ in you, but I labored in such a way that the end result of that time that I was with you was that Christ was formed in you. Now, let me ask you this. Are you confident that you can walk into a room, into a city, into a fellowship, into a community of believers, and you can look around and say, Christ is here. Christ is formed. Not just the presence of Christ, which is where two or three are gathered in his name, but Christ is formed. You can almost see a form. It is so substantive. It is, it is virtually visible to those who have eyes to see. But we can say, 
Christ. When we drive away, one of the most encouraging things, I was telling Jeff earlier, I wish I could call Dad up and say, Dad, you would be so happy what's going on at this church. Because Christ is formed. These people, they see Jesus. They see their union with Jesus. They see their deliverance from death. They see that they are dead uh, uh, with Christ, that they are alive with Christ. They see their union. It's so incredible. See, is that, is that what's... Can you see that? Can you see that? So that, and I just want to talk about a couple things that, that kind of uh, let us know that Christ is formed. That... that um, you can say, yes, I see Christ. That describes this, these people. Christ is formed in them. The first and critical element is this, deliverance from the law. Not just deliverance from the law, but seeing, clearly seeing. The whole, the whole thing about whether if you want to know if Christ is formed, the whole thing revolves around what do they see? Because if they see him, they will be like him. What do they really see? And if they see that they are not under the law, I hope I'm not breaking protocol when I say it was, it was absolutely genius that one of the first things Jeff did when he came here, there was some... Is it okay to say this? The Ten Commandments. Uh, the, the, <laughs> there are some Ten Commandments listed somewhere or a, in the in the foyer. It's like we're announcing to the world. Now, one of one of the things that described uh, uh, um, who was it? This uh, Paul uh, said Moses is preached in all the synagogues all across the land. Moses is preached, but that was the same thing as saying the law is preached. That's when you said Moses, that's what it meant. The, the law was given through Moses. And if you wanted to narrow it down, you, it would be the Ten Commandments. And so if you want to let people know that they're walking into a synagogue, put the Ten Commandments in the foyer. <laughs> we preach Moses here. And so one of the first things Jeff did was, and it wasn't because it wasn't because he was just going to, Rearrange, you know, some guys, they go into an organization, the first thing they do is, is some bold move, like they'll fire people. I had, I had ministers tell me that, you know, I fire somebody in my church organization once a year just to let everybody know who's in charge. I mean, so I'm sure there's chapter and verse for that somewhere, but no, Jeff, I know Jeff. I mean, he, he, there's never been a bone in his body that, that says, I'll show them who's in charge. I mean, that's just not who he is. But he saw, he saw so clearly that the power of the law must be broken over anybody, any group, any church that wherein Christ will be formed. That's the first step. So I think it's providential and divine that was the first thing that you did was you took away the representation that we are under the law. I mean, when I was a little kid, my mother used to lead the children's church and we'd sing a little song. It ended with, we are not under law, we're under grace. And that was all nice and good. But then we go to the Royal Ranger and the guys say, if you memorize the Ten Commandments, I'll give you a little hatchet with the belt on it for your camping trip. And so I'm memorizing the Ten Commandments and Psalm 23, you memorize that. And, and threw in some Beatitudes in there, you know, which kind of show you how much you need Jesus. And, and, and I got my hatchet, my little knife, and my little belt, so I go on a camping trip with the Royal Rangers. <laughs> so, so it was just, it was just so awesome. The, is divinely ordered because uh, if you don't see that you are not partially delivered from the law but 
you are not under the law. The relationship that we have the law is life and death. I talk to Calvinists and, and religious people all the time on my Facebook page. Don't sign up unless you want to visit from the NSA. Guys with sunglasses, dark suits, and an SUV driving up to your house. And we'd like to talk to you about your known associates. But I, I uh, you know, I've never lacked an opinion and didn't necessarily have to be an informed one, but I, I've always felt obligated to have one. But, but I talk to religious people all the time. And it, this is a great, great offense to people. A great offense. I, was ta- I won't tell you who she is because it's a relative. And, and she, was carrying, um, she was carrying a Bible. I noticed it was called something like, the the Jewish Bible, or I mean, it was both testaments in there, but there's this fascination that people have gotten with the Hebraic roots and the feasts and the and all of the all of the imagery which they do not see as as, as types and shadows. <laughs> they see it as the substance. They don't understand all the all the feasts and all that. That's wonderful if you understand it's a shadow. You can just fall right through it. It's, there's nothing to it. It's a shadow, and it was foretelling something. But that's not what what the essence of of their their theology is. So I, I just said to my relative, I said, um, "You just just be careful because there are people who want to bring you under the law." And she clutched that book and she says, "We are under the law." This is a Christian, this is somebody involved in ministry, and she clutched, I'll never forget it, man, it was so tight, she's like, we are under the law, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law, I said, listen to what you're saying, (laughs) yes, when you fill a glass up and it's fully filled it's fulfilled. Do you have room for any more water in it? Do you have room for any? No, it's fulfilled. There's nothing else you can do to fulfill that law. That's the whole, that's why Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law. He didn't destroy the law. He, he, and he didn't say, I came so that I could obey the law and therefore you would have an example in me to obey the law. He said, I, I did not come to abolish or destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. Parenthesis. He couldn't say it because this is part of the mystery. Parenthesis. So that you would never have to because you are going to be in me when I go to the cross and I die. And you die in me. That is the law. That's not only sin being nailed to the tree. That's the law being nailed to the tree. And it will come to an absolute death. And so the the language that Paul uses. Let me get. That's a real Bible. But now it represents something. No. You're. you're, The the, the difference is death and life. Is is there any. uh, Are there any other words in the language that. That you know that are more diametrically opposed to one another than death and life? I said, listen to what you're saying. Jesus fulfilled the law so that it cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. That was the ultimate fulfillment of the law. Could you do that? Could you hang from a tree? No, we don't. We couldn't. And we don't have to because we already did in him. I was crucified with Christ. I was crucified. Past tense. It happened. Jesus reached into the future and brought me and brought me into himself. And he brought all of humanity into himself. And he breathed his last and he gave up the ghost and he died. And I was in him. And I died too. I can't die anymore. Only one appointment. So, the, the linchpin and the offense for many Christian religious people is that not only are we, and I think we have to be more drastic than just to say we're not under the law, which should be enough, but 
to say we're dead to the law. We have zero connection to the law. Because some people are happy to say we're not under the law, but. The big buts. We're not under the law, but. John, I was quoted, somebody quoted to me. John Calvin says, but that doesn't mean you're free to wander around sinning outside of the law. So we, we really are attached to the law. We're tethered to the law. We're not under it. We're just tethered to it. We're not going to let go. We, ha- we still have a relationship to the law. That's what John Calvin was describing. So I think we need to say, I am dead to the law. Oh, are, are we just going to throw the Old Testament away? What are you going to do with that? Well, I don't have to do anything with it except see in it the pop-ups. <laughs> That's what I have to do is see the pop-ups. To see Jesus as he's revealed as the substance of what was to come. So it's, it's so critical. And, I, you know, in, in a manner of speaking, although we, we have been... Set free from the law because we died. Christ died and us and him to the law. And the law is therefore dead to us and we're dead to it. But it's also a, an educational process continually to declare ourselves as dead to the law. I, I, if, if I can be honest with you here, uh, that's always strange to say. If I can be honest, like up to this point, I haven't been honest, but now... <laughs> I'm going to start being really honest with you people. That didn't... I'll tell you what's the truth, right? I've been lying up to this point, but I'm going to tell you the truth now. I should say... I should say... um, Let me be candid with you. How about that? Let me disclose to you. When James yesterday said... We make too big a deal over sin. Something still within me said, wait a minute. Sin can be a big deal. And then as I heard him speak more, I realized I still have a little bit of this mentality in me that says sin can have some dominion over me. Even though I know good and well, Paul said sin does ha, has no dominion over you. But because I had fought for years that what that meant was, see, I, I could not get up and boldly declare sin has no dominion over me because I just sinned 30 minutes before. And I thought what that was supposed to mean is I will never commit any fleshly act again. I'll never have a lustful thought. I will never envy. I will never insult someone or be offensive or or talk badly to my wife. And I thought that, you know, when sin has no dominion over me, I will live a perfect uh, flesh-free life. And so when James said, we make too big a deal over sin, something with me says, oh my goodness, is this really true? Is this really true that with God, sin is not the issue? That's not the deal. See, so there's, a, there's this unfolding. The beautiful thing about what we're doing is that we see the same thing over and over again, and it's new and fresh every morning, just like the sunrise. It's new and fresh every morning. We, I struggled for years to find material to preach. Like, what am I going to do? That's why, uh, if I can give away a little secret, that's why we do series. Did you know that? Because it kind of sets a path. Hey, you know, I know for the next ten weeks I got one subject, and now I just kind of look up stuff. And it's—I don't mean to to demean that, um, <laughs> but I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you how how I thought. And um, sorry, but I love your series. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is. Excuse me, let me get my foot out of my mouth. But I struggled to find things. The good thing about your series is that they center around the finished work of Christ, and they're the gospel. And they're an unfolding revelation 
of things you wake up every morning and see fresh and anew. But I, I wasn't preaching from that. I was grabbing this topic and that topic and what are we, what's the new word from God? And the, the, the really cool thing is that this is, this is the same word, but it's new and fresh. It's, it's a, it's a paradox. It's, it's unfolding and you see something new. And once I caught a glimpse of what really was happening and what was going on, uh, I had so much, there was so much there. I never struggled to find something to preach, some topic, some vein to go in. And what, what you're preaching, whether it's a series or a single sermon or whatever, is this unfolding revelation. It, it all points to him. And that's the beautiful thing about serving a God who holds the universe together. We're going it, to, eternity will not be enough time to explore and see all of the manifold greatness of Jesus Christ. And we were talking yesterday about how, to, how, how will we get millennials, how can we c- communicate to the millennials, the self-centered generation that feels entitled and, and uh, feels like they deserve $15 an hour to, to mess up an order at McDonald's. And, you know, uh, how are we going to reach these people? When, when we understand that Jesus, you'll never explore all of the greatness and the wonder of Jesus of the Son of God, the one. He holds the universe together. Think about that. He undergirds. This is not just a man from Galilee. That was the manifestation from heavens into the earth. He holds it all together. We're going to see things a billion years from now that will blow our minds. Now, compete with that. Millennials, old-timers, boomers, whoever you are, doesn't matter. Compete with that one. So, clearly seeing that you've been set free from the law. Here's another one. Clearly seeing that, uh, clearly seeing your death in Christ. I talked about that yesterday. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. Clearly seeing, this is how we know Christ is formed in us. We clearly see our death with him. That we're not confused about that. We don't. We don't believe in the two natures. That we got the old nature and the new nature, and it's just a fight, you know, to see who wins. And here's how you can feed the new nature, and and you know, it involves writing a check a lot of times, and, and you know, do this series or whatever, or do these levels of learning. But they clearly see their death with Christ. And, you know, there's, a, there's an Old Testament scripture that says the righteous are as bold as a lion. This is not a human boldness. This is not reading the Bible and getting pumped up and really juiced up. And I, I'm bold because I'm righteous or I'm without sin in myself and I'm without failure and, and therefore I'm, I'm bold. This is not human boldness. The boldness comes from understanding that sin has no dominion over you because you have died with Christ. You see clearly your death in Christ. Now, if you're dead, you can't be judged. If you're dead, nothing can come against you. You've already died. The worst has already happened. For us, it's the best that's already happened. So... All boldness and all courage comes out of seeing that we are with Christ in his death. Let me go on quick, and then we're going to close. There's, there's a lot, there's like, you could probably come up with a lot of things of what we're supposed to clearly see. Because Paul said his, his major prayer when, when he said, I'm going to pray for you, and when I pray... I'm going to pray that the eyes of your understanding be open. So the whole, the whole formation of Christ revolves around seeing the invisible reality, seeing this realm, seeing the reality, seeing what's really going on, and not seeing only the flesh or the natural. See, Paul said, 
We used to know him according to the flesh. We could see what was going on on the outside, but we now no longer know him that way. We now know him by the Spirit. So seeing that realm, that reality, is really part, is, is an indicator that Christ is formed in you. And here's another one. Clearly seeing your union with Christ. If you're able to 24 hours a day, seven days a week, just have this assumption that, that you're joined with Christ. You're in union, unbroken union with him. Now, here's what you've got to watch because so much of what we hear assumes that we're separated from God. The whole idea that we need to be cleansed before we worship the Lord assumes that you came in separated from God. Uh, so many songs, um, I might think of a, a phrase here in a moment, but so many songs assume that um, I'm not with Jesus now, but, you know, one day I'm going to be with Jesus. You know, one day I'm going to cross over the great divide and I'm going to be with Jesus. Separated now, but I'm going to be with him. Or um, this continual back and forth relationship we have with Jesus. You're you're cleansed from sin and you're with him, but you goofed up and now so we have to recognize that and resist that and when we constantly see ourselves as in unbroken union with Christ. That's how one of the ways we know Christ is formed in us. That's what will shake the city. That's what will draw and magnetize people to this unbelievable good news. And when they get magnetized to it, sometimes they cry and say, it can't be so. Somebody said, this, there's got to be some ramifications for, for this. This can't be true. Yes, it's true. And when we see it, that's when we, that's when we see we're, we're now, we're seeing Christ formed in us. So, Clearly seeing all of these things, clearly seeing our resurrection, our resurrection with Christ, clearly seeing that our life is hidden with, um, in God, in Christ, clearly uh, seeing this unseen realm is what it means, part of what it means, I probably should say, of seeing Christ formed in us. So, Holy Spirit, thank you for revealing truth. Thank you for showing Jesus to us. Thank you for letting us have eyes that are not bound only to what we see in the natural, but to what is the reality in the spiritual realm. To see that we have already been seated. We sit right now with you in heavenly places. Don't let anybody talk these precious people into believing that they're separated don't let anybody talk them into seeing themselves in the natural only. But, Lord, impress upon our minds by your spirit the reality and the truth that we right now sit with you at rest, at perfect rest and peace in the heavens. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We're going to take a break. and Bless you, God.